So I'm on Twitter the other day, and this cheeky tweet by Zimbabwean tech founder Babu Sinyoni made me chuckle. So it says, My favorite thing about working full-time on our startup is taking time out of building a business to meet with VCs who say they'd like to invest, but actually just want to sniff out the competition. And I love bonding with disingenuous time wasters instead of working on our product so much. I do appreciate that opposition is the price of innovation. It would appear that we are doing something right. You get the dude's vibe, right? Babusi is the founder of a relatively new health tech venture called Sila Health, and he's still somewhat fresh to the startup scene. So I asked him what advice Babusi, the entrepreneur, would give Babusi, the dude who was formerly an employee at a big tech company. You are 100% the guy you think you need on your team. The whole time. <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> If you're a South African electronic music fan, you probably know DJ Lag, or at least you might be familiar with the gom genre he's helped pioneer. That's Lag stuff playing right now. DJ Lag's given name is Luazi Asandakwala. Luazi grew up in Durban, where he made beats in a shack behind his grandmother's house at night and slept during the day. His goko thought he was wasting his life away until Abelungu, white people with briefcases, started showing up at her front door wanting to sign deals with the young producer because his music was blowing up on the European club scene. Or at least, that's how the legend goes. DJ Lag's unlikely career trajectory parallels somewhat with his mate and creative collaborator, Babu Signoni, who I was lucky enough to hang out with in Amsterdam back in February 2020, just before COVID-19 hit. Now, Babusi isn't a spoiled trust fund kid parting away his youth in Europe. He's a self-taught AI professional who's made a home for himself in the Netherlands. And when he first agreed to sit down and tell me his story, he was a UX designer at Booking.com. And on the side, Babusi maintained a busy global speaking schedule and consulted to global tech firms and major nonprofits like the United Nations Refugee Agency. And the DJing thing, well, that just started as a hobby. So what do you reckon is your favorite thing about living in Amsterdam? I would say uh, the work-life balance, um, especially so because Amsterdam is like, it's the weekend of Europe, like at any given time. <laughs> you can just come to Amsterdam and it's automatically the weekend. So if you ever feel you want to disconnect from, you know, your nine to five or whatever you're working on, there's always something for you to do here. Once we found a quiet spot, the first thing I asked Babusi to do was describe what he does for a living. But to his six-year-old self. I would say, because at the time I was watching, you know, Knight Rider, um, just before we lost the TV. So I can tell six-year-old me that I make robots for people who can't. That's what I do. There's a lot to unpack here. Like why Babusi and his family lost their TV, and how growing up in our hometown of Bulawayo, shout out to Skies, well, how that set him up for the life he leads today. What's your earliest memory of growing up in Bulawayo, in Zimbabwe? I guess the period leading up to when I was six, when we lost the house that we had as a family, I think that was like a very pivotal moment in my entire life because we went from this like super stable environment to moving around like so many times. 
So it was actually uh, my parents getting divorced and um, the house being sold. Yeah, that was it. Leading up to that point in your life, you know, was there music playing in the house? Was it a, yeah. was it a quiet place? I think the one thing that I was very fond of was how there was a definite routine to life. Like my parents would play tennis. My dad would go jogging after work and he would come back at like, I think it was around 5 p.m. or 5.50 from the jog. And my mom would have like coffee and like a peanut butter sandwich on the dining room table waiting for him every single day. So it's those things that I think later on in life started to appreciate because routine just like flew out the window. In many ways, the ups and downs of Babusi's childhood mirrors Zimbabwe's political and economic roller coaster. In the early days, life was pretty good. There was this really beautiful moment in Zimbabwe's history where like a middle-class family could afford to buy a house and, you know, live the life I'd literally just described right now, which is- In the suburbs, right? In the suburbs, yeah, it's, it's so crazy. And um, like my mother- As opposed actually, to the townships, right? Exactly. Yeah. And my mother actually, this is like to put it in context for you. She bought the, the stand that the house was eventually built on with the money she received from the government when she was pregnant with me. This was like Zimbabwe functioning at a very, you know, impressive rate economically. And you would never think that this was the same country now when you when you imagine Zimbabwe, but that's what the reality was at the point. I grew up in a neighborhood called Barham Green. Uh, it's predominantly uh, a neighborhood where you'd find the most mixed race people in Wulawayo. Growing up in a community that was more outspoken and more like extroverted than like your typical like black community. So I really enjoyed the friends that I had leading up to 93. I was in a little gang, but it was a cool gang. We used to like buy toffee rolls and stuff. And <laughs> toffee rolls. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was like the big sweets. thing that yeah. we did. Yeah. Um, Candies. Yeah. It was just like a super wholesome upbringing. Yeah. Things were rather nice, you know, before Babusi's parents got divorced and everything changed. But even back then, he and his dad weren't exactly close. We didn't really like spend that much time um, together. He was really like one of those dads who's like my firstborn, you know, and then all the other children just. Yeah. <laughs> and you weren't the first. Yeah, I was not the first. So, one. <laughs> so he was like, yes, um, I have time for one. Yeah, I literally. Um, and so, you're not it. <laughs> no, exactly. So uh, when your parents split up, you ended up with your mom. Yes. Or, so all the kids, all the, all the kids ended up with my mom. Tell me about your mom. My mom, yeah, I think she like changed over the years. So when we grew up, she was like very authoritarian and like very strict. I think because she was raising like four boys and one girl. And um, it was pretty hard for her, I guess, as a single mom to, you know, get this right. And this being uh, raising four boys without a father figure. And things didn't get any easier for Babusi's mom and her kids. Immediately, like the most jarring thing for us was to move from like this giant house to like this tiny room next to a swimming pool with like just like a light. And like it's all six of us in this tiny room. Overnight? Like literally, today we're here, tomorrow we're there. Exactly. And to live on someone else's property now, you know, to abide by their rules. And I remember... We literally lost everything in the divorce. And we used to want to um, like 
watch TV in the in what we call the main house, like the actual house on the land. And the kids, they would make us go shower like twice or three times because they say we're just too dirty to get on their carpet. And that was like, you know, you're coming from like your own home with your own amenities and and your perfect suburban life. And now it's like, go shower twice because <laughs> you're too dirty for my carpet. Wow. I know. Wow. <laughs> kids can be cruel. Kids can be cruel. Yeah. Mm. Didn't you move with all your stuff? And Patriarchy happened, dude. Um, yeah, my dad's family took everything. Wow. We were left with like, I think a bed and a wardrobe. Yeah. Like one pair of shoes for everything. It's for school. It's for sports. It's for church. This is it. You know, you better Let me make guess, work. a black pair of shoes. Exactly. <laughs> for everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like a, a pair of like taffies or grasshopper shoes or whatever. Your generic like school shoe would have to be the shoe you're going to wear to soccer. If they allow you on the pitch, you have to take it off. You're going to wear it to church. Your school jersey is going to be the jersey that you wear to church as well. Like having one pair of shoes, for example, is something that I only noticed was limiting when I would go for soccer practice and they'd be like, wear your soccer boots. I'm like, oh, okay. I guess I got to take these off then. Um, there'd always be something that we couldn't do. Like I couldn't go on the grade seven trip that everyone goes on. I couldn't go to the grade six trip to Matopos, which everyone went to. Did that make sense to you? Was it like, oh yeah, well, I guess I just can't do that. We just can't, exactly. Did it feel unfair? Did it feel... No, for me it was like, it's okay to not have something. Um, we were raised to be okay with not having much. So if we didn't have food today, it was more we were brought up to appreciate what we had and what we didn't. So we were never envious of other people. We never felt like us not having was bad because others had. It was more, you know, this is the reality of it. So it's 2008. Zimbabwe is racked by drought and the government is running out of space on banknotes because of all the zeros they have to add on them just to keep up with inflation. Public servants like Babusi's school teacher mom get hit hard. So like us going without food was probably the lowest moment in Zimbabwe's economic meltdown in 2008. The family moved house a fair bit and winters in the tiny places they lived in were especially cruel. Most of these places weren't really optimized for like the winter, you know, like they had gaps in the doors and they didn't have ceilings. It was just, you know, like a... A box, I guess. It's just a box, like a steel roof or something. Yeah, like winters were really bad. And I remember like there'd be some winters where we didn't have enough blankets and um, we would have to go to bed like wearing like sweaters and jerseys and like three socks and like three pairs of trousers as a proxy for, you know, like warm bedding and, and, and a sheltered environment. Um, but, you know, it's, it's stuff literally that I, I just have to like conjure up now and remember because it was so normalized at the time. It didn't feel like it was out of place. It was more, you know what, you need to be warm and you have, you know, all these clothes. So literally when it was bedtime, we just go into the laundry basket and shop for like clothes you can sleep in and literally just put everything on and, and go to sleep. I asked Babusi how his mother went about creating a sense of, you know, normal for the family in the face of such obvious lack. I think the the one thing that she definitely did for us was to raise us with this like deep sense of ownership. You never felt like like she failed at anything because we were all capable of doing something. So even like when we had that worst week, it's not for lack of trying, you know. We would all grow up with 
with tasks to do. Like we all had our own chore to do around the house. Uh, we had like a family business. Like I, I was really good at tailoring. Like we all like were able to like sew clothes and like cut patterns. And then we'd sell those clothes as well. I used to make bags. I used to make like really cool like sling bags throughout high school. So you knew that everything was within your control. So there was really like no one to complain to. Essentially, we didn't think anything was out of place because it was completely within our realm of control to be able to change. And then if we couldn't, then that was that. I know like when I recount the story, it just might sound like, oh, maybe you guys didn't like, I don't know, like hustle or whatever. Like my dude, we we did. (laughs) (laughs) And also, I suppose, again, context um, for people who haven't experienced a winter in Zimbabwe, especially in Bulao, which is is cold and dry. Yeah. um, And on some of the coldest days of the year, I mean, it's frost. Yeah, exactly. Nights were below zero. Exactly. So you're literally like in this house that is not insulated where you literally have cold air coming in and you're sleeping literally on a cement floor, you know. But that's okay because we've figured this out. Like just wear everything you own. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like no problem. School's tomorrow. Exactly. Let's get on with it. It's like it's a a modular blanket, you know. You like use whatever you need. Lots of people do this. Exactly. And even if they don't, we're doing it because you know what we pioneers in the field. (laughs) (laughs) Patent coming soon. Uh, Patent pending. (laughs) Yeah. Apparently the unconventional parenting Babusi got from his mom had a lot to do with how his humble background didn't end up limiting his potential. She has always been like the reach for your dreams and do whatever you want kind of mom with me um, uh, in in my teen years. So And not so much with the other siblings? No, not at all. So I, I, she's definitely been stricter with the other kids and, and also um, has tried to give them as much scaffolding to help them grow and, and, and figure out their careers. But with me, I don't know. She was just like, I know you've got it figured out. I hope she had faith in me. I hope it wasn't just like, ah, you know, just do whatever you got to do, middle child. Sometimes mothers know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I feel like she really knew that um, I'll be fine no matter what. Well, Babusi was fortunate to attend a decent public primary school called Henry Lowe. Then, after year seven, he had to suck up the disappointment of watching many of his more affluent classmates get shipped off to posh private schools. Babusi ended up at the secondary school nearest to his home, a hub of notoriety called Founders High School. The game changes when you get to high school. It's not as, you know... um, Egalitaire. Yeah, as as (laughs) primary school was, you know. The the economic barriers in primary school aren't as apparent as they are once you cross that 12-year threshold. I remember, like, in my fourth year there, a guy in, in the same year I was in got stabbed outside of the gate. And I think just before that, there was a girl who was sexually assaulted in the school hall. And it was pretty crazy to come from this like super protected, like primary school environment to one where, you know, yeah, might catch a body. (laughs) (laughs) We're laughing out of irony. People are like, what are they laughing at? (laughs) And, 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 you know, what I'm laughing. That's the school I was meant to go to because that's my my neighborhood. Yeah, my yeah. Na- yeah. That's the that's the nearest high school. Mm-hmm. So if you attend based on catchment area, exactly, that's the school I would be entitled to having a place at because my family lived, yeah, close enough, and yeah. I would have a right to attend exactly. versus say someone who lived far or so. Yeah, you know, I guess I didn't. Right. So yeah, that's yeah. So you're at Founders, which oh, I think we must mention 
has since um, become a, a much better school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great headmaster. The headmistress there. Oh, headmistress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Basically, the head teacher now. Yeah, she's really doing an amazing job. Yeah, she's a phenomenal woman. Yeah. Uh, so, Mrs. Demoyo, if you want to Google. <laughs> <laughs> no, real shout out. Like for real, yeah. it's really changed. They've got like lawns and things. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. That was not the school you attended. No, no, no. It was and, not. And yeah. so there you are, um, like navigating the school life. How did you make sure you got what you needed out of that situation? Like uh, education-wise, how do you... Yeah, I think, honestly, the props have to go out to the teachers. I don't know why it is the way it is, but English teachers are always the best. My my English teachers throughout my high school were just the best, except for one who used to think I used to plagiarize my stories because <laughs> they were so good. Yeah, but the rest of them were really good. <laughs> except for the one who thought I was... Yeah, uh, not as brilliant as I in fact am. Yeah, so um, but they were really good, and especially like the most recent one that I had uh, through my um, advanced level. Uh, her name was Mrs. Masego, or oh, still is. Considering the fact that the highest level of education I have is high school, I really have to look back at what had the biggest impact to me, and and that was doing English literature with Mrs. Masego. Yeah. Yeah. What what kind of a student were you? Honestly, I was not like a, a highly performing student. Um, I was very creative and, you know, the curriculum that we had in, in the school was catered more towards like Britain, like post the industrial period. So a lot of the stuff that we were learning, a lot of the things in the syllabus were just training us for roles in an economy that we, you know, wouldn't really control. We we're just like cogs in the machine. And I really didn't find school as fulfilling as it was for other people. Like I was really good at drawing, for example, but I, I couldn't take art classes unless I was in classes five to nine. You know, if you're in the first class, you can't do all these like super creative Because they expect more of you. Exactly. Like go do the sciences or go something. Go do sciences, you know, like go grapple with the Napoleonic period and, and all that in history. And I'm like, dude, I literally just want to draw and like write stories and, and do all this creative stuff. So I was really honestly like the class clown. No clowning now though. Babus' addiction to proactive self-learning properly kicked in after he left high school. The resourcefulness he had gleaned from his enabling mother and the resilience that came courtesy of the School of Hard Knocks, well, they helped him shake off the disappointment of missing out on law school. Instead, he acquired digital skills that set him up for life. Soon after finishing high school, Babusi landed a junior admin job at a local security company. Then, in a few short years, he landed a glitzy senior digital creative role at one of Cape Town, South Africa's most highly regarded advertising agencies. And it's in Cape Town where Babusi took to wearing black from head to toe, almost exclusively. Now, he says that sporting a uniform silhouette, as he puts it, well, he reckons it doesn't allow people to pick and choose which aspect of his person to pay attention to. Throughout my life in Zimbabwe, I was very much sheltered from what it means to be black um, within the global context because we we just existed. But then I moved to the city with the highest population of um, of white people in the African continent, and the dynamics so you, shifted. You mean in terms of concentration? Exactly. Yeah, and it, it was just like you know, it just felt so surreal to be like othered. In, in a place just because of your skin color. And if you know anything about um, Cape Town and especially like specifically advertising in Cape Town, is that 
it's very anti-black and it's really hard for you know black talent to to make it past like the glass ceiling like you you struggle so much as a black person in advertising in in cape town and if i were to tell you the number of times i had ideas shot down by your typical like straight white male who is just shooting it down because he doesn't understand it. And there is no way that this black guy who didn't go to university knows this thing that I don't know. You know, so that's literally where I started wearing all black. And um, I was very fortunate to leave Cape Town and, and move from there because I, I started to think that's that's how the whole world was, only to find out that it was just endemic to to Cape Town. When observing the eclectic elements of Babusi's career to date, the golden thread isn't always apparent. But it does run through the invites to speak about his work at places like Wits University and Oxford, his high-tech software engineering experiments, the unexpected applications of his work in areas like public health, and even the consulting opportunities to some of the world's leading technology brands and nonprofit institutions. I'm very grateful for how I grew up because it's really informing my relevance at this at this juncture. People think you need a PhD um, in data science or like machine learning or something to even like broach the subject, but it's so accessible now and that's what I'm trying to do with my work. Babusi wants to demystify complex digital tools and whizzy buzz phrases like data science, machine learning and artificial intelligence so that everyday people, including everyday Zimbabweans, feel confident to embrace them. He reckons that his rocky upbringing has influenced his uncanny ability to join the dots on seemingly unrelated things. Things like software robots, which judge the coolness of boom dance moves and the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. Yep, that's actually a thing. Google it. It's literally pointing to something. Even when I obsess about a genre of music, it's leading up to something always. Everything is interlinked for me and nothing is ever accidental. If it doesn't make sense now to you, it's only because, you know, it's going to make sense later. And so what songs are definitely making your set list these days um, <laughs> as a DJ? I know you've got uh, you've got a big, big show coming up, yeah? Yeah, I'm very big into Gom. I'm actually working on a project with the biggest Gom producer, uh, DJ Lag, and a Dutch artist. And we're making an artificially intelligence-produced song that's informed by Dutch history and where... Amsterdam is going and um, I'm trying to move away from the super commercial spaces that I play in. I want to play at like really like underground, like queer spaces and, and just play like the gom that I want to play, which is like really dark and, and yeah, that's what I want. Okay. What are you going to play us out with? I will play you out with one of my favorite gom songs. It's by DJ Lag and it's called Umshuto. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And that, my friends, was Babu Signoni in 2020, dressed in black from head to toe. And of course, I caught up with him more recently for a follow-up chat we used to do the final edit of this piece. Dude, you sound so chill about everything you've been through. Has it been harder to process everything you've shared about yourself on this podcast or have you really just taken it as well as it appears? <laughs> I definitely think I've, I've taken it well. Um, and the reason why I say that is because 
it's an unfortunate fact, but life is brutal. Life is consistently in motion. Life doesn't care about whatever problems you might be going through. And the relativity of the human experience means that no matter how poor I might be or wealthy I might be, my human response to things is on the same level as someone who might be on the complete end of the spectrum of whatever I'm experiencing in material terms. Okay, so then you're teaching now. What the heck, bro? Like, what would your English teacher think? <laughs> I mean, is this a full circle? She's super proud of me. She was actually one of the first people I shared that with. <laughs> For real? <laughs> yes. So, so it is a full circle moment of sorts. So first tell us what you're teaching and where. So I am a tutor for the final year students at the Royal Academy of Art in The Hague. That's in the Netherlands. It's one of the oldest art institutions in the world. I think it's the second oldest. It's a pretty prestigious art school. And I'm just there to assist the final year students with the formulation of their thesis projects from my perspective as a creative technologist. Um, the, the reason why it's full circle is because my mother is an educator. And um, when I when I got the gig, the first person that I thought about was, was her. Like, wow, look at me, I'm doing what my mom does. And the reason why it's also kind of not full circle is because, you know, apart from the the altruist intentions of imparting knowledge to the next generation, for me, this is also a way for me as a as an entrepreneur to stay sharp being exposed to such a variety of ideas coming from the next icons of design it, it really allows me to kind of vicariously stay relevant and also stay uh, abreast of what's happening trend wise within the creative technology space so you've got like a, a front row seat to the next beeples <laughs> exactly exactly and then how did the thing go with dj lag Oh yeah, so we we knocked that one out the park. Um, we nice. finally <laughs> we finally got to explore the intersection of machine learning and the primal sounds of GOM and the potential that an upcoming pop star has, and and brought something out of it. The song that we made, I can't even say it's an acquired taste, but it's not anything I've ever heard before. And at first listen, I didn't like it. <laughs> but I realize that I don't like it because I'm not in the future yet. So, you know, I'll give it one or two more years because this is something that we predicted would be popular in the future and the future will, will be the ultimate benchmark. But I'm, I'm really happy with the way that it turned out. Absolutely. And so the other unfortunate thing, of course, is that COVID meant that you couldn't take it on tour. Yeah, correct. Oh, shucks. Well, <laughs> one day in the yeah. future then. It is future-proof, so I, I don't mind when we can finally perform the song and, and get a real crowd's reaction to it. The song is called Reasons, and it is produced by DJ Lag and features vocals from a Dutch, um, an upcoming Dutch pop star, 
called Sarah Jane. Well, she's a, a mega star in 2024, right? So correct, correct, correct. <laughs> Taylor Swift, watch your back. <laughs> <laughs> it's too late for that. The song's done. You know, <laughs> it is written. <laughs> so her coffin is her coffin is built. Is that the last the nail is has been hammered in? Correct. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I'm really kidding. No one's dying today, Taylor. No one's dying today. All of you can live. All of you can live. Here we go. Them. Well, they're here to sit us free. 